The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We've recently had some great conversations with directors whose documentaries are currently available on Netflix. Ken and I spoke with Rory Kennedy about Downfall, her searing indictment of Boeing and its enablers. We also spoke with Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, in which he reveals the poignantly personal side of the legendary artist. And Ken spoke with Cootie Simmons and Chiki Oza about Genius, a portrait of another great artist, the young Kanye West, as he makes his way from obscurity to renown. You can find these conversations in the Top Docs feed, and you can watch these documentaries now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Rebecca Hunt, director of BABA. BABA had its world premiere at the 2021 Toronto International Film Festival and screened at the Berlin International Film Festival and CPH Talks. Just last night, it had its New York premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. BABA is being released by Neon and can be seen in theaters starting on June 24th. Beautifully shot in pulsating, vivid color on 16 millimeter film, Beba really deserves to be seen and heard in a theater. So we urge you to get out there and see it in a theater if you can. Rebecca Hunt is an Afro-Latina writer-director born and raised in New York City. Her short film, 1-800-Lovable, premiered at the Black Star Film Festival and screened at festivals around the world. Beba is her feature documentary debut. Talking to Rebecca the morning after her Tribeca premiere, the sounds of New York and its various sirens in the background, it was really great to get her take on the film growing up in New York and the eight-year creative journey that she went on to get this film made. Beba is a great New York story, a great personal coming-of-age drama, and a wonderful immigration story as well. But really, this is something much deeper than all of that, and also much more ambitious. It's a film that both embraces and confronts legacy and asks deep existential questions about identity and our place in the world. It's also a film that invites us to participate in the same questioning process that Rebecca is going through. As Rebecca herself says in the press notes, I'm not asking for you to like me or even for you to identify with me. My hope is to trigger the human in you so we can begin a deeper dialogue around what is already true, our innate correlation. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us on Twitter, at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Rebecca Hunt, the director of Beba. Rebecca Hunt, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. It is such a pleasure to be here. Of course, and congratulations on this truly wonderful and important film. Can you give us a brief logline of the film? I guess it's just an existential coming of age, but usually coming of age is like, you know, we're thinking puberty, and this is more sort of existential and cerebral and like spiritual in a way. Yeah, it's definitely all of those things. Why do you make documentaries? I can say why I made this one, because this is my opera prima. I have also made a short, a documentary short called Ai Koro. And it's because I'm obsessed with real life. And I have, and I had so many questions that I wanted to answer. And I felt that documentary would be the most authentic way to do it. Because for me, it's actually like a very liberating medium and it can mean so many different things. And it's a fun place to start from to experiment. So what was happening in your own life as well as in the external world that led up to the birth of Beba? 
Well, you know, the film took eight years to make. So I was 23 when we started. I was a recent college graduate and I was sort of coming from this utopia, the utopian environment into the real world, quote unquote. That experience is one that's talked about a lot. There's just a built-in existential crisis that happens when you graduate from college in general. And at the same time, the political climate in this country and the social climate was very intense because, you know, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and a bunch of these other sort of murders were happening around the country. And then I had just moved back into my one bedroom apartment with my family after going to this really wealthy private college. And now I was back in the one bedroom apartment kind of cramped with everyone again. And it just felt really hectic. Like I was feeling so many things and I had so many questions and that was really the drive to answer them or to explore them rather. This is your feature length documentary debut. What gave you the confidence to think you could pull this off? That is a great question. I don't really know how to answer it though, because I think that it's something like really deep. And I also feel like this is a question that you can ask any artist. You know, it's like, what gives you the confidence to create things for other people? And I don't know if it's like, it's more like love than confidence, but I guess love is a form of confidence. Did you see the project sort of fully formed in your head before you started, or was it more of an iterative process? I saw a lot of it in my head, for sure, 100%. I was watching this film for years. I think that, you know, in terms of having strong creative collaborators like Sophia Stieglitz, my DP, and my editor, Isabel Freeman, then they also brought their creative juice to it, and it turned into something else that was as incredible because people add to your vision and it turns into something bigger, right? But I think that there were things that I knew from the very beginning because it's so personal in a way that I always knew what needed to be explored, to be honest. Was there anything that you didn't see at the outset that later became apparent to you, oh, this is going to be in the film. This needs to be in the film. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that's, I think the nature of inventiveness in general or of the creative process. But there was like a sort of feeling of, okay, yeah, this is it. This is what I've been looking for the whole time. This is what it looks like. Because I think once it clicks, there's something in you, especially as a director where you just know, like, it's like, oh, we've got the shot. There's like an unknowing and a knowing because the creative process is complex like that. And there was a, a lot of things that came up because so much of it was happening in real time too. And I was experiencing, it was very meta. So I was also just like living my life at the same time that I was making this film to make sense of what was going on with me and with the world and what being alive was. I want to ask about the opening shot of the film. And you were just talking about how there was so much going on. And what's interesting about the opening shot, which is of you lying on the beach, is how still you are in that moment. We do hear this sort of swirl of voices on the soundtrack. These are different people talking. We haven't met any of them yet, but they're talking, I would say, judgmentally about you. And they include a warning from someone we will soon find out as your father. 
saying there's a price to pay for everything you do. You cannot take things that I said and turn it around. Then we have these on-screen inner titles that say, this is my part, nobody else speak. And then in voiceover, you say, you are now entering my universe. I am the lens, the subject, the authority. All of this, I think, sets up the film as a chance for you clearly to tell your story, but also suggests that what you say might represent a challenge to others. It's clear, I think, that even though this is your universe, your story is going to intersect, overlap with, and challenge other people's stories as well. At what point did you realize that this film was going to both include those other voices and simultaneously shut them out so that you could tell your story most effectively? And how did you keep all these voices in some kind of balance? Yeah, and I think that's a great question. I feel like I struggled with keeping the voices at bay because a lot of them were inside of me. Like my family knew that I was working on a film. It was no secret. I mean, I was interviewing them, but it took so long that there was kind of this idea that it was like, oh yeah, you know, she's making her project or whatever, which makes sense. It was the better part of a decade. And it's like, it took a while. So I feel like the preconceived judgments that I had, the way that my family would have reacted to the film, those were in my head because my family hadn't seen it yet. My parents didn't see it until it was finished. And it's interesting because I had a really hard time keeping, and I, I'm just talking about my parents because that was the hardest part. It's interesting because I think, you know, what people in the industry thought when I was going to fund it, like I, I'd go to funding like parties and meet funders and they would look at me like I was insane, which... I get it. I mean, I was, you know, trying to pitch a movie about myself as like a 20 something year old nobody. Like, what have I lived? Who do I think I am? And like, why? And those are some really hard questions to answer because it wasn't that sort of retrospective idea that we have. The film is meant to connect on like an existential conversational level. It's not like here's 20 years of my life that I'm reflecting on. And I understood that this was a new concept. But all that being said, as much as it was hard to meet funders and go to some of these different spaces, it wasn't as hard as what I thought my parents were going to think of the film, which is a blessing and a curse in a way, because nothing really mattered other than the voices in my head that were like, your parents are never going to talk to you again. Like after they see this, this is it. So you better be good to them now and you better tell the truth and make the best one you're going to make because it's going to take them a while to forgive you for this. And it was actually not the case at all. They're actually extremely proud and went to Toronto International Film Festival, were with me last night at the Tribeca premiere. They're super proud. So that's a huge lesson. That's great to hear. And also as an artist, you don't know how it's going to come out, but you just keep going forward and do what you have to do. So there's courage there as well. Still sticking with the beginning of the film, by the way, the narration, the script is just so rich. I could quote the entire thing as a prelude to these questions, but I'll just do this one here, which is you say, as a product of the new world, violence lives in my DNA, followed by I'm watching the curses of my family slowly kill us. So I'm going to war and there will be casualties. This cannot be our legacy. To what extent did you feel that you were making this film on behalf of your family to put an end to this curse? Because you do take on the burden of not just yourself, but your family. I think to a very large extent. Yeah, to a huge extent. 
It's interesting though, because I feel like the film is very personal, but then it's also not personal at all. I'm a very small part of it. Actually, the vision and the driving force for something like this has to be so much bigger than me for me to have gone and worked on it as long as I did and as hard as I did. You know, like those reasons had to be so much bigger than me and about creating community. And I feel like there's also just the larger pictures, the curses of humanity you know, because we all have them. And these were the ones that were closest to me. So I was just displaying them for the larger conversation. It's this interesting thing between I was taking on my family's burden, but then I was also not because there wasn't something else that was much bigger that I was taking on, which was like connecting the human experience in a way. I think there's a great ambition with the film, which is fulfilled through the narrative and the tools that you use. And I wanted to ask about the medium of film. When you set out to, quote, go to war, do you feel that film as a medium gave you the necessary tools to do that? Yes. And I also feel like making a film is much like going to war. Although I've never been in war, <laughs> knock on wood, except, you know, the ones that we fight with ourselves every day and blah, 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 blah. I think that film was definitely a medium for that because it allowed me to, it, and that's why it's my favorite artistic medium and it's the artistic medium that I love and that I devote my life to as a writer-director because it really gave me the space to just work the vision out and do what I wanted to do with this. It incorporated everything I love about art in general, which is something only film can do. You know, it has music, it has literary references, poetic references, cinematic references, and everything that was important to the conversation that was being had in the film. And that's what's great about film is that it does involve all, all the other art forms. You shot the film in 16 millimeter, correct? Yes. That's a really interesting artistic choice, not one that's commonly done these days. Can you talk about why you wanted to shoot it in 16 millimeter? And did that put certain constraints on you? For instance, like you have to get the footage processed before you can see what you've shot. This is a two-part question, so I'll answer. The first part is that the film is meant to be an intimate portrayal of our experience as human beings through this person and body. And I feel that when I think about intimacy, it is limited and pulsating. If I'm exploring the concept of intimacy in my head, I'm thinking about being in bed with a partner or a lover, or even kind of like looking at my arm like this to see if there's a little bump or just looking at a part of my forehead in the mirror. It's very limiting and it's very limited. Like the notion of intimacy is limited and pulsating. And when I think about 16 millimeter film is also by nature, extremely limited. Like what it can capture is limited and is also pulsating. Like it has this sort of pulsating visceral feel visually. And so in my mind, when I was thinking about how to embody the intimacy of the film, I just believe that 16 millimeter embodies intimacy. Like it is an incredible way to capture it because itself is limited and pulsating. <laughs> it's also tactile. Totally. Uh, yeah. And also I think it provides you with a certain color saturation and just color tonality that video does. Well, the color, yeah, we spent one month on color because 
and Splendor Omnia and the finishing studios in Mexico, because what 16 millimeter allows you to do with color is incredible. That's what it is. The film is a universe. We spent three months on sound and one month on color alone. It's like creating the universe and like the different colors. So yeah, that's definitely a part of it. Thank you for bringing up the color. It's a huge part of it. Back to the film at the beginning of part one, The Curse, you tell us the story of how your parents fell in love in New York City in the 70s and sacrificed everything, quote, for us to be the poorest kids on Central Park West, unquote. And later on, you question your father about the one bedroom apartment, which I feel has taken on this bigger than life aspect now that I've seen the movie that he moved the family into. So I'm really curious to learn more about this quote, because I wanted to know, like, how old were you when you became aware that you were the poorest kids on Central Park West? And how did that affect your agency in the world once you did? And that's a great question and not one I've been asked yet. I feel like, to be completely honest, I don't feel like I felt it so much until college, really. Because I went to public schools that were extremely diverse in New York City. And I had friends that were richer than me, that were poorer than me, that were in a similar situation as me. Not necessarily living in a one-bedroom apartment on Central Park West. I think that was very specific to us. But the diversity of experience in New York kind of just made it feel like we were just like New York kids. And we were cool and having fun. And it was chill. And then when I got to college, I remember... I invited a bunch of friends to stay at my place, like during the fall break or something, freshman year. And it was so normal because like my high school friends, we would literally all just hang out and sleep at my house because my mom wasn't strict at all. So we'd all sleep over and just all of us would sleep in the living room and it'd be like seven or eight of us like on the floor with sheets and pillows and whatever after a fun night. It was so fun. So I just thought it was normal. And I invited a bunch of friends from college to like come for a weekend and sleep at my house. Sophia Geld being one of them, my producer, and their reactions were palpable. Sophia was so cool. She was just like, yeah, like this is dope. Nice to meet you. Like we're going to, yeah, both of us were like, you're cool. You're cool. But their reactions were just like, it was like, oh, okay, this is different. This is a different world. And is that something that you then sort of processed? Yeah. I mean, not too much because I think I was probably not as great at processing things at that age as I am now, but it was definitely something I internalized. I want to ask you about the interviews with your family. So we see the interview with your father and then soon there's a conversation you have with your sister where the two of you walk past a local community garden that sparks a story that she tells. A little bit later, you interview your mom separately. I'm curious, how did you think in advance about how you were going to approach each of these interviews with different family members? I honestly didn't really think about it that much because I feel like that's just how it is in your 20s. The part of the film in which I interview my sister, I'm just like, yo, can we go to the store? And we're just talking. We're just kicking it. And the interview with my mom, that's what our relationship was like back then. Like there was just no, it, there was a, a deep abyss. We were incapable of communicating with each other. So whatever method or whatever I was trying to do there, like clearly failed because I think what's probably the most interesting part is that there's not really an interview. It's just 
a scene of nuances between a troubled relationship of a mother and a daughter. And I think with my dad, I probably had an approach there in the sense that there were things that I knew that I wanted to ask him about. There were things I knew that I wanted to ask him about. There was things that I knew that I wanted to ask my mother about. And there were things that I knew that I wanted to ask my sister about. But overall, I must say, it wasn't like extremely methodical. It was like, okay, I think I'm going to ask him about this stuff because this stuff is interesting to me. Like my father's childhood is fascinating to me. Why he raised us in a one bedroom apartment and never wanted to leave, even with the fights between him and my mom and everyone judging us and, you know, judging him for the decision. He just didn't care. He was like, no, we're staying here. This is where we're raising them. And I thought that was really fucking fascinating. So I wanted to make sure that I asked him about those things. And I also wanted to make sure I asked my mother about what it was like to be a mother and what it was like to grow up in Venezuela. But, you know, we see how far that gets. <laughs> so, yeah. And my sister is just like, we're just hanging out. I mean, I'm asking her questions, but really, we're just hanging out. Did the filming process help you break down some barriers and get to know your family members better or in a different way? Absolutely. Both on and off screen, not just filming them, filming interviews, also just the lifestyle I was living. I had so many different jobs and was house hopping and stuff. And it just kind of gave me an opportunity to be an adult in the world going after my dreams and respecting my parents for making theirs come true. Like my father wanting to raise his kids on Central Park West and my mother coming to this country and raising a family. It's just, it's a hard world out there. So I think everything about the filmmaking process, not just the interviews, really made me grow in a way that I feel more compassionate and empathetic towards the complexities of my family members. With your sister, you have the line, if I'm daddy's girl and Juan Carlos, your brother, is mommy's boy, my sister falls into a neglected dimension I don't even try to understand. That's a line that I think has a lot of weight to it and just really sinks in. Did you write that later during post-production process? When did that line come to you in this process? The feeling of wanting to express that was very early on. It came with that interview or around that time because it was also Christmas time. That's always been something that in the back of my mind that I don't touch that there's that sentiment and that I'm sure that she must feel that way. But the actual construction of those words, I would say definitely during post-production, but there was probably like 20 million iterations of that sentence. And we left on that. With a personal film and your film isn't just a personal film, as you said earlier, the personal is just a small part of it, but a film that has personal narration, the writing is absolutely critical to the film. And the writing in this film is, I think, both precise and evocative. Can you talk a bit about the writing process? Yeah, absolutely. I think it started off with going through journal entries. My producer, Sophia Geldenich, we were just looking at my journal entries when we were 23. I have so many journals of just different versions of the film <laughs> because there was always going to be a mom section, a brother section, a sister section, a father section. I think one of the early versions was letters to each of them, but it went evolving weirdly as, as I evolved and as my experiences evolved. And then something had to happen where I had to put a pause and say, no, 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 this is done. This is what it is. While I as a human being kept on evolving. 
Like there's writing in there that I don't agree with. I don't agree that we have to constantly go to war with ourselves. That's exhausting. But in my 20s, fuck yeah, I believe that shit. You know, it's like now I believe that I have to hug myself as much as and love myself as much as possible and, and stand by myself and accept myself as much as possible because that's just what it is. But yeah, there's things that I don't agree with. So I'm just saying like it was a process. <laughs> So the one interview that isn't in the film is with your brother. Can you tell us a bit about the reason he's not in the film? I think it's really simple. He just asked to not be filmed. But we have a recording of a conversation that he had, and he was more than happy to have us record him. You interview your family members in separate spaces, and there are different interviews with them. But I don't think we ever see the whole family or even you and your two parents together in the apartment. There's only one time when you see them with my sister, which is I'm filming, but no, you actually don't. That's an interesting point. Yeah, it just made me wonder how your parents occupy that same space together because in your film, they're occupying different spaces. Right. There's that line though where I say they're like dancing in the kitchen to Lucky Dooley, the pain festering around them. That's kind of how they occupied the space in my mind when I was young. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a striking image. Part two, mind control, as it's called, covers your years as an undergrad at Bard College, the liberal arts college in upstate New York. And you interview a former professor of yours, Annie, who shares some things about you as an undergrad and the group you hung out with. It's an interesting interview, I think, because the relationship seems to occupy the space between friend, colleague and mentor. And so some of these traditional boundaries are sort of blurred here, I think. And I also think she's the only non-family member who's interviewed on camera. Can you talk about what space this interview occupies in the film? I think that she was a huge aspect of my understanding institutions, understanding the meta narrative, and understanding how things were done in general to get ahead in the world in a way that was unclear to me, having immigrant parents and also just, you know, going to public school in New York. Like she was someone who was like, okay, kid, look, the reality is there's a formula to this. This is what it is. Take it or leave it. And I was like, fuck this, this is bullshit, but I'm gonna take it. And that's all I have to say about that. It's interesting because she seems to have some second thoughts about what she said to you at the time but we definitely get the sense that you did take her advice and that it changed who you were, at least who you were at the time you were in college. And it also maybe seems to have changed your direction in life. I don't want to read into it, but it definitely seems like this had a big impact on you. I think so too. I know that they did. Definitely. Definitely. And do you have any second thoughts about her second thoughts? <laughs> oh, I think I'd say it in the film. Like it's not, cool to try and assimilate. You know, then I, I'd say something like, fuck Annie's respectability politics. I think this is a very complicated question. And I think one thing I do believe is, here's where I'm coming from now with this, okay? Because this is different from the film. Now, as we speak, I'm Rebecca, the human being, the director in this moment. I feel when it comes to that, that I don't judge anybody for how they survive. I have my own ways of navigating 
the system and I don't judge anyone for their ways, whether it's respectability, politics or not. It's just like everyone should be free, like free to try and navigate systems as they believe will work the best for them, especially if you're in a marginalized community, particularly if you are, because it's just like, okay, you have your own strategy. (laughs) Everyone should be free to have their own strategy. There is a scene later in part three of the film where you're hanging out with your friends and the conversation becomes about race. These friends are white and they say some, you know, highly problematical things and you get pissed off and leave. And then we learn from looking at the credits that this was a quote stage scene, which isn't a knock on the scene at all. It just tells us how it was constructed. But my question is, and I hadn't thought of this until now, which is, I wonder if this is in part a response to how you navigated the system, because in a way you're kind of rejecting this dynamic that Annie has talked about earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. And yes, this entire film is a presentation of navigating. It is the existential conversation. And the goal is to connect in that sense, in the larger sense. Absolutely. This is just what I did. But I respect Annie for what she said to me because I don't judge her for what she said to me because that was the information she had and what she was taught. And I took it in and followed it for a while. Like I followed it until I graduated from college and then went on my own way. These things are very complex. Like we're talking about really sort of, you know, we're talking about the meta shit, which is great. (laughs) But yeah, I absolutely think you're right. In a later sequence, I think it follows the scene with you and your college friends. We see street protests against police violence against Black people. And this is one of the few times we catch a glimpse of specific, recognizable, contemporaneous historical events. Why did you want to step out of the more decontextualized environment to focus on contemporary history at this point? Because I wanted people to have an understanding of where and what things look like at that time, which is the same exact reason that I included the conversation with my friends in the living room. And it just comes and goes because they're not focal points in the film at all. Not something that we've delved into. It was just like, oh, by the way, this is what's happening on the outside. Later in part three of the movie, you describe a relationship you had with someone named Michael, a close relationship. And you tell us that several months after you broke up, he jumped off the George Washington Bridge. In the next sequence, there's a karaoke scene in a bar with you singing what seems like a Mexican love song. You're really belting out the song. Tears are coming down your face. It's both an emotional moment, highly emotional moment, but it's also a performative one, as karaoke always is. Can you talk about this scene? I'd love to hear more about it. It's actually, it's kind of real. It's a reenactment of something that happened a few years. Like the reenactment is like three years later, four years later. But after my ex-boyfriend committed suicide, he committed suicide in May. And I spent that summer just like getting drunk in Bushwick (laughs) because I lived there. And there was this Mexican karaoke spot near my house where I just hear these Mexican men like wailing into this, it's like, Andrei! like that's so, it was incredible, it was beautiful. And it was like so visceral because I was feeling this. So I just would sometimes walk past and just be like, oh my God, wow. And then one day I was really sad and 
just happened upon and walked in and made friends with a lot of the older Mexican dudes who would go there at night. A lot of them were my neighbors and they're like, oh man, Rebecca. I was like one of the guys, like none of them were ever, like it was really beautiful actually. I'll never forget them. After that summer, I like moved. I moved because I was like, okay, I have to start new, get my shit back on track. Like I just mourned this whole summer. That's a reenactment of that time, essentially, when I was like going to the local spot in my neighborhood and just like wailing with these middle-aged Mexican men who were like my best friends <laughs> in that moment. And we're just like, let it out, let it out. Your love, you've just lost your love, let it out. And it was like, it was cool. <laughs> How was it that you had your team film it? That was probably filmed when I was like 20, five or 26 and it's in another place it's not in the same bar because that bar actually closed down we went back in bushwick and it wasn't there anymore so we went to one in corona queens i believe and i just got like really drunk and did a karaoke P song on like my favorite song at the time like my mourn song <laughs> so yeah there are these for lack of a better word performative moments in the film with you in them and i'm just wondering did you have to kind of enter a different space to be on camera in those moments rather than when you're the director interviewing your family members, for instance? Yes, but I was also directing myself in those moments. So I think that there was this level of separating my brain is the best way to put it, where I'm like, okay, because I am the lens, the subject, and the authority. Like, I know what I want to get from this. And so the director in me is like, well, you got to get in mode because this is what I want to see this is what I want to get from you. And I'd have these conversations with myself that were like me, like pushing myself to do something and to show something that I felt was important to the conversation. And obviously I was way harsher on myself than I would have been to a subject, but that's because there was a lot of different zones happening. So I want to ask you about another sequence. It happens in part four, which is called the call is coming from inside the house. And by the way, there is I think a good dose of humor in this film that comes through. And I, I just want people to know that. I appreciate that. And my editor, Isabel Freeman, would appreciate that very much. Thank you, because it's true. Absolutely. In this sequence, you tell the story. It's a pretty harrowing story about how you had an interview set up at a production company the next morning, and your brother ends up basically stealing the bathroom out from under you so you can't take a shower. So the interview doesn't happen. Your mom, instead of intervening on your behalf, scolds you for banging on the bathroom door. And then you turn around and choke your mom, which is obviously incredibly intense. But what I really wanted to ask about was the shots that follow that, which appear to be archival footage of waterfalls, maybe Niagara Falls, I'm not sure. And there's really no mention of any follow-up to these events that you've just described. As a director, there are so many directions you could have gone. And I'm just fascinated to hear why you settled on that and how you came up with a filmic language that you felt expressed what you wanted to express in the aftermath of that story. Yeah, I think that water is definitely a big theme in the film. Water is very close to my heart. I love water. And so it was a no-brainer, I think, when we were trying to express what some of the emotions of such an intense action and such a violent action would be, sort of depicted in a natural sense, like natural as in like nature and like human nature and then what we were trying to portray there. And I think the direction that I went in terms of 
what happens afterwards. It's like, this is what it is like to exist. A lot of the times we do things that we regret or that are not our best selves and there's no result. We just have to, we just grow and we move on and we evolve, but there's no trying to put this in a pretty little boat. Fuck that. That's not how life is. And that's not how growth is. It's interesting because it takes, I hadn't thought of this, but it takes the water of the shower also as a lead into this incredibly magnified force of water that comes from a waterfall. Which was actually shot or archival footage from a friend of our editors, Jesse. At the end of the film, you talk about the qualities, both good and bad, passed down through your mom from her family and your dad from his. And you also talk about your own qualities, good and bad. And you say existing is to hold space for all of this. We talked earlier about using film to go to war. And I'm wondering whether you feel like the film can hold space for all of this. Was there anything that the film just couldn't hold because it's just so big? No, I think the film did a good, I I hope the film does a good job of holding space because that was the point. The point is for people to watch and be like, okay, it's okay to be me, like themselves. It's okay to be complex. It's okay to be imperfect. And, you know, we're all just doing our best. You end the film with these lines from an Audre Lorde poem, love as deeply as if it were forever, only nothing is eternal, speak proudly to your children wherever you may find them. And then it goes on for a couple more lines. Why did you want to end the film with this poem? I think ending with that Audre Lorde poem is giving the audience something and giving myself something to hold on to. You know, it's like, here's what's next. Like, here is the sequel in this poem. For me, that poem is like their directions for existing. I read that poem very often just to remind myself. And it's an excerpt from a larger work. We wanted to share that with the audience so they can have that to take it with them. So I want to ask one more question because that was from an Audre Lorde poem, but I want to end on a line that I think is from one of your own poems. There's a scene in the film where you cover yourself in mud and then bathe in a petal-strewn pond. And we hear this poem. It is yours, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Everything is written is mine. Sure. Great. And the poem references being lost. And one of the lines is, lost as I am, I say. So my question is, did you feel lost at all before and during the making of the film? Yes, very. Still, sometimes. How about now that it's done? Sure, sometimes, but not because of the film, just because I'm like a floating specimen on a floating rock in, you know, one of many universes. So that probably has something to do with the larger feeling of being lost. And what do you think the film gave you that you might not have had otherwise? A level of self-acceptance, a forced level of self-acceptance that I would have probably, hopefully would have found in later years. But now I have come into at a younger age that I feel incredibly grateful for. Well, Rebecca, I'm incredibly grateful to talk to you today and grateful that you've made this film and put it out in the world because it isn't just a personal story of your life. It's something that resonates with, I think, everyone who's searching for answers and looking for a direction. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. 
Do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem, a film that maybe doesn't quite get the recognition it deserves? I have like 20 million, but I talk a lot about Camille Billups and I feel like her films, like her personal films, Suzanne, Suzanne and Finding Krista, one is about her sister and her father and her sister's relationship. And another is about her reuniting with her daughter that she gave up for adoption when she was four years old because she wanted to become an artist. And they are absolutely phenomenal. 